Welcome to the Mike Ricksecker Audio Journey on MikeRicksecker.com. We are very, very pleased to welcome him back to OSC. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mike Ricksecker. Thank you for the uh, warm welcome, and uh, thank you, Ken, for inviting me back. It's great to be back here. Um, I grew up as a kid for 10 years in Massachusetts. My uncle lived in Rhode Island, so it's always fantastic to be able to come back here and visit, also to get inside from the heat today. <laughs> Uh, so very nice to be cooled off for a little bit. Um, who out here is familiar with my work? So a few people, okay. So for those of you that are not, there's going to be a test at the end of this that you need to pass. Um, I'm kidding, but um, actually it kind of rolls right into what we're talking about with the history of the paranormal. Uh, a lot of people, when they think of history, they think of, oh man, names and dates, I gotta remember some words. They remember like their experience in high school and, and uh, history class. Um, my ex-wife used to say, oh, all that boring history junk that I hate. It's like, well, that's why she's my ex-wife. But, <laughs> but uh, history of the paranormal, it's, um, is this moving in the right direction? Which button am I hitting here? Okay, well, see how it goes. Um, and so for, for millennia, we've been passing down stories. We have some indigenous people sitting around a campfire, and this is really how our history first got handed down. I mean, we do find stone tablets and scrolls and things like that these days, but the uh, spoken word is how much of our history originated and had been passed down. And one of the wonderful things about this is that these people were storytellers. Going back to the history class in high school, I was very fortunate as a, as a high schooler that I had two history teachers that were fantastic storytellers. Yeah, there were names and dates and some wars and a map here and there thrown into the mix, but they would tell a story and make it very personal to you. And one of those teachers that happened to go overseas to Europe and he, talk, he was talking about all the different locations he he had been and the things he had seen with his own eyes. And so it was very, very engaging. And that's what these people did. That's how they were able to pass down their own personal history for years and years and years was they were very engaging storytellers. There we go, it moves, okay. So I'm not gonna give any spoilers, Game of Thrones, right? But this was in the uh, very last episode, Tyrion Lannister made this fantastic quote. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. And it's very true. You think of the stories that you recall that come to mind, and it was a good story. Whether or not it was a terrible event or not, the way that the story was presented was very memorable, and so it sticks with you. And a lot of our history throughout time, whether it's some of it's accurate or not, was told as a good story, and so therefore it has been passed down. And so this comes into play when we are researching the paranormal, when we go to a historic location and we're trying to discover information about it. You know, where are these stories? What, have, what has been lost to time? Which is something that 
I really enjoy about going to these historical locations, investigating the paranormal, even uh, uh, residential cases when we're digging up history on the people's actual homes. And you start to find the stories within these locations. And I'm going to go into a few examples throughout this presentation. We'll even get into some urban legends and find out what some of these stories happen to be. So when I was researching my book, Ghosts of Maryland, which was my first paranormal book, I'd already been a uh, published author uh, with some mystery novels, but um, the paranormal had always been something uh, that interested me. Last year when I was here, I talked about my first real paranormal experience with Shadow People. That's a book coming out later this year. Uh, so I was hit up by my publisher, uh, or at least that publisher at the time of my own publisher, now Harbor Media, but uh, she said, I know that you write mostly fiction, but uh, we are looking for to carry on a line of paranormal books. And so we think you'd be a great fit for Maryland, because uh, I, I did have some short stories that I'd written that were ghost stories. And so I jumped on it. And so I started the research, okay, haunted locations in Maryland. This was over 10 years ago, I think, uh, probably closer to 15. But this one here, uh, Mount Airy Plantation, Rosaryville Park. When doing the research, I came across this one little quote. It's just almost like a one-liner. And it's really like half a line. A distraught young woman, heartbroken and mourning about the house, still desiring a forbidden love she was disallowed to have in life. Doesn't tell you a whole lot. Now, this is a very historic house. George Washington had spent time there because his uh, stepson had married into the family. Uh, many, many ghost stories uh, concerning uh, horsemen through the, uh, the property and all these different things going on. But as far as this one girl, this is all that was there. Heartbroken in mourning, and she's still haunting the house. A forbidden love. Okay, so what is this? Well, digging and digging and digging, trying to find her story. Like I said, I found all this other great information about this house, but this one really stuck with me. And so I did end up finding her story. I had to really search. This is from a 1914 book on colonial houses of Maryland and Delaware. So the book is over 100 years old now. It was almost 100 when I was researching. And the story of Mount Airy Plantation is in there, and it actually did include a more detailed account of this young woman. And it is a very sad tale. It's a good story, a sad one at that. And got a couple of snippets here. The tragedy of Ariana Calvert is one of the most pathetic stories connected with the historical mansion. She loved a young man who had been received at her father's house, but was looked upon, or was not looked upon with favor as the daughter's prospective husband. And the story goes on as to what actually happened to Ariana. Her father, Benedict, did not like this young man and forbade Ariana from actually seeing him. Well, being a young woman, of course, she would do things to try to sneak out and, and visit with the young man. So her father sent her away to Annapolis to go live with her sisters. This basically destroyed Ariana. She was depressed and mourning and like very distraught while living with her sisters. Her sisters thought it would be a great idea to go ahead and try to find her a new suitor. So they were bringing in other young men for her to meet, and she turned every single one of them away. Ariana was just really hung up on this young man that her father said she could not see. Well, as she grew deeper and deeper into this depression, she began to grow very ill. So much so that 
she was no longer able to move out of bed. She had grown so depressed it was actually killing her. Well, during this time, her father, Benedict, passed away. Her mother took pity upon her, invited her back home to Mount Airy Plantation, but by then it was too late, and Ariana actually died there. And now her ghost haunts Mount Airy Plantation as that little one-liner that we saw before, but now we know her entire story. It's much deeper, much more rich, and that's something that I really love doing when we're researching these haunted historic locations is finding these people, telling their story. It, to me, they're people that have been lost to time and now we're able to remember who they were and pass that on to the next generation. Hopefully the next generation won't forget, they'll remember and keep carrying on the story. So I kind of, that's <laughs> her mother and father, that's Benedict and her mother Elizabeth, I kind of skipped over that part. And this was just another, uh, snippet from uh, Mount Gary Plantation, so I kind of cruised through all of that. Um, so then there's the urban legends. This one's kind of fun. Uh, this is the Skirvin Hotel in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and this is very notorious for the chambermaid Effie, who is said to haunt the hotel. There's a couple other spirits that are supposed to be there, but Effie is the one that people say will uh, appear in their bedrooms, uh, and this is the fun part about it. Uh, the New York Knicks getting scared out of their room, blaming a loss to the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder because of Effie the chambermaid. Effie is said to have uh, committed suicide at the hotel, jumping out of the top story window with her baby in hand. Uh, she was supposed to have been the uh, mistress of W.B. Skirvin, who is the proprietor of the hotel, and when she got pregnant and had the child. Uh, he kept her in the top story penthouse, kind of hide her away. He didn't want to be associated with her. I just had a child with a chambermaid. And she grew very depressed and despondent and jumped out of the window with the baby. Well, there's a problem with that. There's no record of there ever being an Effie having never worked at the Skirvin Hotel, which, okay, you might be able to hide that through some sort of purging of records, but there's also no newspaper account, no news account, nothing of a woman jumping with a baby out of the top story window of the Sheridan Hotel. So where in the world did the story of Effie come from? Well, part of that comes in understanding the history of the hotel and its construction process. For the first couple decades of its existence, there were only 12 stories to the hotel. In the 1930s, 1932, they added on a couple more stories. It, it is actually important because of the way that we pass on stories. So in 1934, uh, a salesman from Dallas jumped out of the 12th story of the Skirvin Hotel. It was no longer the top story, but this was only a couple years after they had added on this couple of stories. So if you think about the way that we communicate, if somebody who didn't know about those couple of stories being added onto the hotel was told, hey, this guy jumped out of the 12th story of the Skirvin Hotel. For the last 20 years, they'd known the 12th story as being the top story. And they can turn around to somebody else and say, oh yeah, yeah, the, this guy jumped out of the top story of the hotel because they are thinking back to when there was only 12 stories to it, Now, even though there's 14 now. So that's how the story starts to get manipulated and twisted. It's kind of like that game of Operator. 
Well, okay, it's still a salesman, so where does the woman come into play? Well, a few years later, there was a woman who attempted to jump out of one of the stories of the hotel. It was the eighth floor, if I remember correctly. Uh, not the top story. She was stopped. She didn't succeed. Uh, she was fined $11 for drunkenness. Uh, there was a security officer who pulled her back in. So it's a woman who attempted. Doesn't necessarily explain the baby, though. So where does the, the baby come into play? Well, a lot of the ghost stories that are told about these urban hotels, as far as things that people experience, is that people do see chambermaids that show up in their rooms. There's one guy who claims that chambermaids showed up in the shower with him. I don't know about that. <laughs> you never know. Uh, people claim that they hear phantom maids carts going up and down the hallways. Uh, they won't see the maid there, they won't see a cart, but they'll hear it going up and down the hallways. And there are times where people hear the cry of a baby up and down the hallways. So it's kind of this mishmash of different stories about the hotel. There's a little bit of history from back in the 1930s, salesman jumping out of a hotel window, a woman trying to jump out of the hotel. You can see where the top story of the hotel kind of gets manipulated a little bit, and then the actual sightings of the spirits of the hotel and some of the different things that people have experienced and heard all get mishmashed together to create the story of Effie. Not sure where the name Effie came from. Somebody gave it to her at some point, but that's how these legends and stories start to be twisted around. Another one, another sad tale, the Gore Orphanage. And this one's been featured in, um, I think Supernatural did a uh, episode on this. It's a uh, urban legend in Ohio that the, the information on it has been so twisted, it's, um, but it's an interesting study, is, is uh, the way I've taken it in. So the Gore Orphanage, the legend, is that old man Gore ran an orphanage in the early 1900s out in Ohio. And he was a very mean old man, he uh, was very abusive toward the children, he would lock them up at night, and because he would lock them up at night, and he would do other things, like would treat them poorly, beat them, would feed them improperly, things like that. Uh, but because he would lock them up at night, when a fire broke out at the orphanage, he ran out, saved his own life, and all the children locked up in their bedrooms perished. The problem with that is there was never a core orphanage. The ruins that are shown here that people say it was the Gore Orphanage, was actually known as the Swift Mansion. And this is what it looked like back in its heyday. Um, down a hill, uh, they call it Swift's Hollow, named after Joseph Swift. He was a railroad magnate, uh, very wealthy during the middle 1800s. He lost all of his money, ended up having to sell this beautiful home. It's a Greek revival structure, kind of unusual for the area. And the Wilbur family ended up purchasing the home and living there for uh, about 20 years. Now, there is a tragedy with children associated with the Wilbur family. And that is four of their grandchildren in the span of seven days died of diphtheria. It's very sad, very tragic. The Wilbur's were spiritualists, so they did hold seances within the house to try to contact the spirits of the children. Uh, the grandmother kind of lost her mind a little bit, would do things like put out place settings on the table, thinking that the children are going to come visit and have uh, meals with them, which of course never happened. 
Uh, in the late 1890s, they ended up uh, leaving the house and it became abandoned. So where does this orphanage thing come into play? I've got a couple of historic photos here. It, it became abandoned and became destitute and became run down. Well, there was an orphanage that did come into the area. as the Light of Hope Orphanage up the hill from where the Swift Mansion was. The Light of Hope Orphanage did purchase the property on which that mansion had been. They used it for the farmland that was back behind it. They just left that house abandoned. Nobody actually stayed there. The children, they, I imagine coming down to work on the fields, they probably played within the mansion, but nobody actually ever stayed there or slept there or lived in that house again after the Wilbers left. They came into, into play uh, here in 1903. So there's a six year gap from the time that the Wilbers left until the Light of Hope Orphanage came in up the hill. There were a lot of tragedies associated with this particular orphanage. This part of the tale is true, in which the Sprungers were very uh, mean and harsh to the children. Uh, they were malnourished. There were 15 kids that had to share bath water. There were stories of rats nibbling on the children at night. Uh, several children ran away, ended up turning the Sprungers in for uh, this abuse and neglect. Uh, one of the, if you can imagine this, uh, one of the boys actually ran away from this orphanage so that he could get some schooling. You know, usually kids want to try to get out of school. He wanted to go to school because he wasn't learning anything here. And so uh, the, one, the one lady here is actually a uh, mistress that worked on the property. Every once in a while they would get like a tiny bit of schooling and she would take care of that. Uh, but usually the kids were just on the farm and, and working. And so... That trial, they actually had a court case in 1909. By 1916, the orphanage was gone, and the farm uh, land was turned back to other farmers. The Sprungers were gone, and so was the Light of Hope Orphanage. And yet, down the hill, that mansion, that swift mansion, was just rotting and dissolving, still abandoned, never used as part of the orphanage. There was a fire that came into play, and in 1923, seven years after the Light of Hope Orphanage was gone, it did burn down. They were looking to restore it. So there's some rumors as to whether it was an arson fire or not, or whether it was just kids playing around in the house, which they actually did deem a haunted house at that point in time. Um, but it unfortunately, it did burn down, and all that's left is a bunch of rubble. So how did the legend of Old Man Gore come into play? Well. What's interesting is that the road that this is on is called Gore Orphanage Road. Like I said, there was never a Gore Orphanage, so how did this happen? Well, it was originally just Gore Road because there was a map correction in that particular area. It was a triangular-shaped uh, piece of land that was used as a map correction, which is called a Gore, so it was just called Gore Road. Well, when the Light of Hope Orphanage came into play, they just appended the name Orphanage on there. So those who've been in the area for a long time knew what Gore Road was, to go down Gore Road. Those people looking for the orphanage, well, there's an orphanage at the end of the road name. That's where the orphanage is, and we go down. So it was two different names, just they appended orphanage onto it. Over time, people thought it represented a Gore Orphanage, which actually never existed. As far as the fire, a lot of people believe that this unfortunate fire 
was transmuted onto what is now the Legend of the Gold Orphanage. This is the Collinwood Fire in the Cleveland, Ohio area. This was very tragic. This happened about the same time as the Light of Hope Orphanage was going through its terrible court trial. We didn't have fire safety codes back then. And when this fire broke out, children were trapped trying to get out. There were 172 children that died in this fire. It's very, very tragic. And so a lot of people believe that the story of this fire and all the children dying within it became, became superimposed onto this orphanage since these things were happening about the same time. Then there's Helltown. This one is uh, kind of interesting as far as urban legends. Um, oh, I did forget to mention. So the Gore Orphanage area, a lot of people say that it's, it's haunted with these children that are on fire, which of course is completely untrue. There is a little bit of a mild haunting there. Like I said, the Wilbers were spiritualists. You do feel a bit of an energy when you get down there within the ruins. So there is a little bit of something going on there. The uh, Helltown area of Boston Mills, Ohio, um, it's a tragic piece of political history for us in which uh, during the 1970s it was believed, and I totally understand that we were uh, using too much, man, too much land for commercialism and industrialism and weren't saving enough land for our park systems. Totally get it, awesome. But what they decided to do instead of just segmenting out new land for parks was they decided to take over entire towns and entire areas and boot people out. Eminent domain by our federal government. This house here, this is actually pretty recent. This originally happened in the 1970s. This was just from a couple years ago. They, they're still uh, taking over these houses and destroying them. So this was 2016. Uh, September, and then this was February 2017. That house, just five months later, completely gone. Um, and they even reshaped, even though it's an abandoned road, they've closed it off, they even reshaped the actual drainage ditch and where the driveway had been to make it look like there was nothing ever there. Um, so they are successfully making it a park system, but a lot of crazy rumors have come out of this particular location. Um, some homes were supposed to have already been haunted before they decided to come in and tear them down, but we'll never know now since they are gone. Uh, became known as the Helltown area because of how quickly many of these houses were abandoned. Local fire departments were allowed to come in, burned out the houses for training, so it looked like a very burned out, destitute area. So a lot of stories arose. There's one of the school bus in that there's a couple different things associated with this, but the most prevalent is that there were serial killers that came out, stopped the school bus, killed the children. Then the children were buried in the local Boston Cemetery, and now that cemetery is haunted where park benches move around, trees move around, ghosts are seen on top of the benches, which there are no benches within the uh, cemetery, which is kind of interesting as to how those rumors uh, came about. There's the Satanic Church which is actually preposterous, but they say there's upside down crosses on the church. Well, it's actually just a gingerbread type of architecture. Some of the uh, struts look like upside down crosses, but they're really not for that. Um, and then the bottom picture here is of the town uh, several decades ago, and most of those structures, 
the couple off on this side here are still around, but all those other ones are completely gone. So very tragic as to what happened to these people, that they were thrown out of their homes, thrown out of their businesses, and then all these crazy rumors came about. Uh, people talk about um, underground military bases or aliens or chemical spills that cause mutations. All kinds of crazy rumors came out of this particular location. I took a personal interest in it because I actually had a family that owned the paper mill, the Jade Paper Mill. Uh, on my grandfather's side, um, there was uh, marriage there with the Jade family. They actually ran that paper mill. So my grandfather's little child here off on the side. And they did preserve a couple of the old buildings for use as the park administration buildings. So a little bit that, uh, of that remains. So I took a keen interest in this. Uh, what I ended up discovering, if there is any government conspiracy, like people try to say, what I found within the area, a couple of interesting things. They say, Things are usually hidden in plain sight. Well, the two things that I came across were a gas pipeline being run right through the area and the transcontinental cable being run right through the area. Something people forget when they cover this area. They always talk about you know, federal government coming in, booting people out. But when it comes to things like this, having a family connection, something that happened before the eminent domain was Interstate 270 was supposed to go right through that area. That little town of Jake that I showed was supposed to go right through there. Well, the people of the area fought and fought and fought and fought against the State Highway Commission so that that would not get placed in there. And they won. It was moved to the south. It cost the government millions of dollars to do that. But they successfully defeated the government coming in and building this highway system right through their town. So you have these couple of pieces of infrastructure, gas pipeline and transcontinental cable. Well, I expect, and this is my opinion, there's not a way to prove it, but from my own personal opinion, I think the government didn't want to go through that fight again. You know, these people were very strong, very resilient. They did take their eminent domain case to Congress. Uh, there's actually an excellent PBS documentary from the uh, early 1980s about this called uh, For the Good of All. You can find it on YouTube. And so my belief is the government didn't want to deal with a fight like that again. Let's just run through the eminent domain, boot them out, and we can run our stuff right through there. And we'll build a nice park around it so that people can be happy. And it is a nice park. People do ride bikes through there. They jog. People ride horses through it. So, that's my opinion. All right, so paranormal history and residential history. So, this becomes very important when we're uh, doing residential cases is getting the background of the locations, the houses, trying to see if there's a reason why a particular haunting may be existing. Um, I've thrown a couple of stills up here from uh, the episode of The Haunted House on. You see Carl's down here doing a cleansing. <laughs> Um, but when we were early into the case, it was something the show doesn't ever show. They make it look like we investigated the, the house one time and we had Carl come out. Uh, we were there about a half dozen times and trying to figure out what exactly was going on. And the activity kept escalating. So what we did discover was that um, the father of the original homeowner did commit suicide in the bedroom where 
Callison, the girl who was having most of the problems, uh, where she slept. So there's a lot of tragic history associated with it. Um, following his death, the original homeowner and his wife were, you know, they were not having a very good relationship. They kept fighting. Um, he tried to kill himself, um, put a, in the middle of an argument, put a pistol under his chin, pulled the trigger, missed. Um, of course, it was still a bloody mess, and they were divorced shortly thereafter. Um, in interviewing a local police officer um, who had been, he was retired, uh, I could never find any documentation on it, but it was an eyewitness account that there was a, a teenager who had accidentally fixed excuse me, asphyxiated himself in one of the closets. So you had all of this tragic history associated with this property. Which could have been tied into what was going on there, or perhaps it was the entity that was there that was uh, impressing itself upon these people uh, and causing these different things to happen. So um, after Carl did the cleansing, uh, they've, they've been very well off and nothing like that has occurred since. One of my favorite things to do um, is use history as a trigger, trigger object during paranormal investigations. So I'm one of those uh, paranormal investigators that likes to go in armed with as much backstory and history as possible uh, because I believe that the more you know, the more you can relate to the spirits that are there or that may be there uh, at least. And so perfect example that I always like to uh, use is this World War II uh, plane. So this is at the, uh, it was a flight school in Frederick, Oklahoma. And this actually saw action during World War II. We, um, we had the privilege of actually being able to climb into the plane and investigate inside there, which was fantastic. But we weren't really getting any activity. You know, we're, we're doing an EVP session. We got some of the meters set up, like K2 meter and all that. Nothing, 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 nothing. We're about to wrap it up. It's getting late anyway. And I decide that, well, I spent six years in the Air Force. I'll go ahead and relate a little bit of my experience and just simply said something to the effect of, well, I spent six years in the Air Force, which I know came out of the Army Air Corps, which you flew for, got into a couple of Air Force stories, and then boom, all of a sudden we're getting EVPs, we're, you know, some of the meters are lighting up, we're getting activity going on that's actually responsive to some of the other follow-up questions that we had. So we discovered that we were communicating with the navigator that flew in this plane. So just coming in with a little bit of history. Flew during World War II, basically where the current Air Force came out of, the old Army Air Force, stuff like that, and we started getting responses. I kind of related to being a salesman. It's a difference between um, you know, just knocking on a door, knowing nothing about the house that you're at, and trying to sell them on something where, uh, or versus you know, going to somebody's house, having a little bit of information about them, and then you can actually start to communicate with them. It's kind of like, you know, you're at an event, you're trying to mingle a little bit. You might know like one piece of information about a person like, hey, you're so-and-so and you do this. And I'll say, oh yeah, yeah, I do that. And boom, boom, they start talking to you. You just have a conversation. To me, paranormal investigations are just having a conversation with the spirits that are there. And so at the end of the day, kind of back to our storytelling. 
you know, what I end up doing is I include a lot of these stories within the books that I write, within the videos that we put together in the Hunter Road Media Channel, and hopefully these stories will get passed on. To me, that's kind of a, a big part of what I do is, yeah, I'm collecting knowledge, but then I'm sharing it back out with everybody, and hopefully the next generation can pass it on to the next generation and so forth. Otherwise, we end up with a lot of these people like Ariana Calvert, back in the beginning, where she was lost to time, her story was lost to time. But now, as we're going to these historic locations and investigating and doing this research, these people's stories are able to live again. And that's it. This is where you can find me, and I'm right out here under the tent, so I'll take any questions. Or not, that's fine too. <laughs> okay, right here. Favorite place to go investigate, that is, these days would be the Mineral Springs Hotel in Alton, Illinois. I've had favorites over the years. I really loved the uh, Stone Lion Inn in Guthrie, Oklahoma, uh, Golden Rod Showboat before it burned down. Uh, right now we've been doing a lot of work out of Mineral Springs in the Alton, Illinois area, so um, yeah, it's a fantastic haunted location. It's five different levels, it's massive, it's huge, and there's, between each level of the hotel, there's different energies. There's a lot of different people uh, within that hotel. So there's a lot of history with it as well. So it's, it's just interesting. Right here. Where's the most active place that you've been in Rhode Island? Most active place in Rhode Island. I have not done a lot of investigating in Rhode Island. <laughs> um, just because, I mean, I was here as a kid visiting my uncle and then the first time I got back here was last year, so I haven't had a chance to do much investigating in Rhode Island, unfortunately. So, okay. Uh, I have two questions. Sorry. Um, first of all, what sites are recommended for doing a lot of periodical research? I'm sorry, the periodical research? Yeah, magazines, papers, whatever, so that you can just do a lot of Oh, where can you go on, like online? Is that yeah. that's what you're saying? Okay, um, yeah, I have like a whole nuts and bolts presentation that I do, <laughs> uh, paranormal research, uh, which you, you can actually find a video of that on the Hunter Media Channel. But just a couple of, you know, quick examples for for one, utilize your libraries as much as you can. There's a lot of things at your libraries that are not actually online these days. Um, there's a lot of great newspaper archives. I love to dive into newspaper archives. Actually, they're absolutely fantastic. You can actually get you know firsthand accounts from that time and place. Love historical maps. Um, those are not all of those are online. Sometimes you have to go to the library or the local clerk's office. Um, find a grave has been really useful. Um, usually, the first place I'll hit though um, is like the county assessor's office. Find out some information about the property, like how old it is and things like that. Okay. Okay. Sounds fantastic. In the back? Bachelor's Grove. Bachelor's Grove. Um, you know, I haven't been there yet. It's about five hours from where I'm at. Because uh, I'm closer to the St. Louis area, and it's on the other side of Chicago. Um, I have a bunch of friends that keep saying, Mike, you got to come up. you got to come up. So I'll get there one of these days. I do do a lot with, uh, with cemeteries. 
Uh, we have like an entire series on our channel of whether it's historic cemeteries or we've been doing a lot with trying to find lost and abandoned cemeteries. Because uh, again, people that have been lost to time, you go up in the woods and there's a you know, little cemetery up there, you know, who are these people? They get forgotten. Um, yeah, um, again, another one I haven't done yet. Yeah, yeah. So over here. How long on average It's good to go back as many times as possible. Like Mineral Springs is a great example where we've gone. I mean, a couple, at least a couple dozen times. So we've been able to more fully vet the location and um, you know research it out, but. Um, and the more the more you do, always the better. You know, if just going one time is not enough, because um, really you're just introducing yourself to whoever may be there haunting the location. Um, the more you go back, the more they become familiar with you and who you are, and so you're able to give better responses, at least as far as a paranormal investigator. Um, the research I'm doing continuously. You know, it's um, you know what's. I have found that once I start putting information out there that I've uncovered about a particular location, other people start coming forward, oh, have you heard about this, have you heard about that? Oh, no, I haven't. And then I start down that rabbit hole and try to you know, research more of that line of information. So it's always a continuing, uh, continuous learning process. Yeah. So I've done a lot of research in the Library, <laughs> whatever I can, um, you know, walk into a, a library. I used to work for the Howard County Library System in Maryland, uh, so I had those resources at my disposal when I worked there. And so it was just, you know, what are all the different historic books that are available to me that I can try to find information about these particular locations? Since I was doing, you know, haunted mansions that dated back to the colonial period. You know, that was a book that interested me. Okay, let me start leafing through here. Oh, hey, you know, this is a uh, uh, house that I started covering. Let me see what is in that book. And then that story just popped right out. Like, oh, there she is. Yeah. Anything else? Place in Maryland. Um, I've had a lot of interesting experiences at the Samuel Mudd House, so that was that was definitely a favorite. Antietam has a uh, really interesting energy to it. You know, very sad, very heavy. Um, just walking the battlefield sometimes, and you can just you can just feel that you know, battlefield energy. What's up? I, I can still hear. Oh, Point Lookout Lighthouse. Yeah, um, I, I've been down there. I, could, I couldn't get into the lighthouse at the time. Uh, yeah. What was interesting about Point Lookout? So they um, they had where the old uh, prisoner of war camps were, and I was doing an EVP session there, and I was I was near my car. The car was turned off, 
But as I'm sitting there trying to do an EVP session where the old prisoner war camps were, all of a sudden a bunch of static come, start coming out of the radio in my car. It was absolutely bizarre. When I was in the Dunkin' Church, I had like a little tri-field beater and I put it across the room. Mm -hmm. And the church is So we'll take one more question and we'll wrap it up. Is there any more? Okay. Oh, Charles. Yeah. Is there any particular location in the world that you're hoping to investigate? Um, yeah, I've wanted to get over to Ireland, Scotland, and investigate the castles, um, the Paris catacombs, but the restricted area that you're not supposed to go. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of places I still want to get to overseas. All right, thank you very much, everybody, and I'm so glad you're here.